We all have them. We all talk about them. But only two men have decided to make a podcast about their weekends. Do you have a good Saturday? What do you do? Anything good? Um, I went to... We didn't do much in the day. Two best mates. The issues are with the treatments and where researchers might... I mean, this is boring chatting at this. In an uncut chat about their weekends. I actually felt disappointed because I ordered a rubber seal for the oven door and it didn't turn up. Starring Tim and Gendel. Dad's getting pizza. And we're like, <laughs> big, big dad on campus. Hey, I didn't click my fingers and go... Mm. You did. <laughs> did you mean, hey, kids... Dad's getting pizza. Tim and Gen's weekend podcast. Anything could happen. So that's the trailer for the podcast. Yeah. What do you think? American voice, explosions, you know, do you, do you not think it's horrifically over the top? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's perfect. Cool, cool. It's done then. Welcome to Mixtapes with Mike, the podcast where I invite a guest to make us a mixtape of 10 tracks without using the same artist twice. We're going to talk about each song, and if you like the sound of what you hear, you can listen to the mixtape in full on Apple Music or Spotify by clicking the link in the show notes. So if you're the kind of person who'd like a new mixtape to land in your lap every Monday, please consider subscribing. And if you enjoy this episode, it would mean the world to me if you would leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on. Now, Usually, I go out of my way to find guests from around the world who have some sort of appeal in their their own little sort of field of expertise or or their sort of subculture that they sit immersed in. Uh, But this gentleman is a 10-minute drive away. But for some reason, we're still doing this on Zoom because we're both busy dads. This week's guest is singer, songwriter, and music producer Chris Halpin. How you doing, mate? All right, mate. Yes, I am good. I occasionally sound a bit brummier, and then I remember to put my radio voice back on. How are you, mate? <laughs> There's been a fair bit of brummy in the preamble for this, actually. It's been quite quite gratifying, quite comforting. You can tell I've not done anything for a while, because it's really sort of like... Yeah, it dips. I shouldn't be, like, ashamed of it. Like, I'm from Birmingham. I'm proud of being from Birmingham. But I just get a bit self-conscious about the accent, and as I do more and more things i go right i'm gonna try and speak and enunciate not sound too um what i'd made <laughs> it's absolutely fine so it's a, it's a bit of a long story for us actually we we go back quite a while the first time i remember meeting you was at a, a songwriting workshop that we both got sent to from our respective schools Whoa, that's just come back to me. Like, actually at high school? Yeah, yeah, high school. So there was, like, some yeah. weird... Like, it, I don't know if it was at your school or if we got... I think it was, yeah, at Kingsbury School. And there's, a, you know, a few different groups and we basically spent the afternoon, like, messing around writing songs. And... uh wow. that's, like, a hundred years ago, man. We were, like, year 10, like, 14. Probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we... Ran into each other again years later because uh, we had a friend in common in my ex-girlfriend, Titch. Mm. Um, and so that, yeah, that's when I met you and Chris Field 
uh, and, and various other people from the sort of the Kingsbury scene. <laughs> Is there such Kingsbury, a thing? Kingsbury, yeah. I, I don't live there anymore, but yeah, it was like a tiny little petri dish of like stuff. There was, there, there, was a, there was a little clique of misfits that would hang out and uh, they oh, wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah, yeah, I was definitely in that in that gang. Um, yeah, just like a music guy. God, that really takes me back. Yeah, being like, I was really in my serious muso phase. I was doing like string quartets and stuff. I was like, no, oh, I'm 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 outgrowing guitars, man. I'm gonna make serious music when I'm like 14, thinking of all that and a bag of chips. <laughs> um, but yeah. And then we, we, we were kind of in more regular contact when we were both playing on the acoustic circuit. Um, in Tamworth. Yeah, a lot of uh, open mic gigs in Tamworth and Birmingham and various other places around the Midlands. Maybe for you, mate. I, I didn't leave Tamworth in them days. I think, um, yeah, the acoustic thing, I was like... Well, yeah, you didn't start driving until much later. Yeah, I was late to driving. That was definitely a thing. That was definitely like, uh, that does limit your options, yeah. And Barnes is close to the bus stops. Well, there you go. And then you were one of the few people I confided in when I started doing the loop pedal shenanigans. And you actually introduced me to the person who would become my agent for, you know, a good two or three years after that. Our dear old chum, Johnny Mustin. Wonderful, wonderful gentleman that he is. Yeah, that was a really special night. I like really, yeah, I really like, I invited him down because I was like, he's got to see Mike, he's got to see Mike, he'll totally get it. And I was like, we got you on. And I remember like, you were just like, I don't know where you've been or something, you were just like really knackered and had a long day. And I was like, can you just please go on last, please go on last. And you're like, yeah, dude, I'll go on last. And I was like, it'll be totally worth it. I promise this guy's going to be here, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, man, it went down. It was such a good night. And then it turned out really good for you guys because the plan worked. He was like, yeah, I got to work with this guy. Yeah, it was good. And then because you were doing work with him as well, we we pretty much got sort of grouped together going, right, you, you help him record some of this stuff. And... So we ended up hanging out at your place and, and you were you were essentially my music producer for a good year or two, just working on recorded versions of my weird loop pedal songs, which was a very different way of producing songs from what I gathered because we had to work out the sequence that I created the songs live on stage and record each stage of it into separate tracks. But for you, that meant that the, the song itself had, I don't know, far too many tracks. Yeah, they got pretty ambitious, yeah. It's weird because it's kind of like uh, there's a, uh, that mindset is a bit to do with what I do nowadays because I'm like, live, playing it live comes first nowadays um, with what I do, with, or what I was doing before, you know, we all stopped touring with COVID and everything. But like, yeah. Like, I, I come from the school of, like, you go into the studio and you piece it all together and you were coming in with, like, well, it goes like this. Let's record it that way. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, sort of, but there's a bit, yeah, there's a bit more to it. But we made some bangers, man. Um, yeah, it was good. I, mean, I can't remember the fucking words. You know the one. Um, promises. If I can find a copy of that, recorded version because I don't I think I might have found one of the old CDs lying around but I honestly don't know if I've got CDs oh, I know 100. yeah 
but yeah. My friend Tom played violin on that. Do you remember Tom? Y- yeah, I told. There? Or, I, I didn't to- find that in, did I? Yeah, I told that. I told that story recently to a friend of mine because we were discussing musicians who have to have the music in front of them and people who play kind of by feel. And he was a guy that needed the notation in front of him. You couldn't kind of emote the the sound to him. He it didn't quite compute. He had to have the notation with the timing written down. So yeah. you had to figure out a way to get that down. So in a way that he would understand it. And then he played it in it. And he played the same Because you were just sort of singing the thing. Oh, it goes like this. And it's like, oh hang on, yeah, we're gonna have to like I'm gonna have to be the the middleman here for this to work because like like a lot of musicians and I've worked with a fair few people in that sort of classical background where yeah if there's no dots on the page then it's not happening yeah because like, I think the conversation that, that brought it up was we were talking about people who are very technically talented musicians but they can't do a thing without the 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 notes in front of them whereas some people they can play by feel they can, you know, like, okay, they can pick out a note or a chord sequence and go, okay, I think I can slide this in. And they've kind of feel their way into the track. My my cousin came up, so she's a really good pianist. But she, she, if you ask her to improvise or to kind of jam on something, she kind of locks up and freezes. She's kind yeah, of, yeah. she's probably capable, but she just doesn't know how to get into it because it's always been this sort of structured, almost paint by numbers kind of, playing yeah there's loads of amazing musicians who work like that um it's fun to be able to work with that stuff i do reasonable amount of that stuff the best is when you get occasionally you'll get someone who is in that world but they totally they're totally cool breaking out of it and when you get like a violinist who can just like riff on stuff you can have like here's the score but like they can run with it and they can do stuff that's when you're like yeah now it's happening i'm like in the middle of a bunch of conversations with people like that for bringing in guest spots for new tracks and stuff and it's like that's good man it's good it's a weird process because i have to like get my school head on and do some scores and stuff um, which is what i was trying to do when we first met in Aww. kingsbury school bless did you rock up you must have rocked up with a guitar i think i probably had in fact i know what i had it's right there in front of me it's a very pointy ibanez guitar which i still have to this day yeah, so I would have rocked up with my uh, Takamini acoustic to play through the parts. And I don't think I ever had to bring the sort of laptop and the sampler across because we, uh, when it came to like laying the percussion, the percussion down for that Promises track, I knew that you would have a, a you know, a raft of samples and Stuff that oh, we we're could... talking about that. I was talking yeah, about yeah. school, but yeah, let's jump let's jump in the timeline. Let's go to um, when we made that. Yeah, it's, we were doing. Yeah, it was like there wasn't that much stuff actually. I think we had to record quite a lot of it for like reels. Like now, there's so much stuff in the. I have like so much sound stuff. That sound. There's a more technical term for that, I'm sure. But there's a lot of musical stuff in the box, as they say, that we can do. But like. Yeah, I'm just like clearing out my old studio and some of the gear that we recorded on is there and it feels like vintage to me now. When was this? Like maybe what? Don't say 10 years ago. That seems absurd. It probably was. Well, it would have been 2008, 2009 kind of time. Yeah, yeah. 
So you were, mm. we, we recorded all of those tracks on Pro Tools with your little yeah. automated mixing desk, which just amazed me because I'd never seen uh, a digital interface move physical dials like that. It was the, the future at the time. It's like, it's heading to the skip. It's just vintage, like, it's just junk now, but it was like so high tech at the time. Loved it. Who needs that stuff anymore? Oh my god, that's kind of Dude, heartbreaking. It is, isn't it? Like, it literally doesn't work anymore. You can't, you can't even use it. It's not supported anymore. I'm like, about to skip it all. Oh, that's that's crazy. You know, you yeah. know, it's like, because there's such a, there's almost like a appeal or almost like a fetish for uh, original like Tascam four track recorders and things like that that were using cassettes and stuff, and. My sister's ex-boyfriend from years ago liberated a four-track and just, just kind of gave it to me, going, yeah, you should record some of your music on there. And I just never really knew where to start with it. So I never did much with it. And then I ended up just giving it back eventually. But You've seen what... Um, Aless- uh, I'm going to get his name right. Alessandro Cortini does with four-tracks. No. So he's the dude... Uh, like a sort of tech wizard guy in Nine Inch Nails actually he's in the more recent lineups I saw him with them on the what's the last like big album before they started doing EPs you know I'm just a copy of a copy of a copy that era mm-hmm. um, yeah he just like loads of stuff in the Nine Inch Nails live show is just like coming straight off a little cassette and he's like manipulating it on a little task and that's his instrument there's loads of stuff on YouTube you should check it out man he does some wild stuff with it. Oh, that's crazy. Pre- like a four-track as an instrument. I'm pretty sure he's been put forward in somebody's previous mixtape as an artist for some of his solo material at some point. His solo but... stuff is awesome. It's so beautiful. I mean, it's covered in, like, tape hiss and stuff, and you can tell, like, the tape speed warbles and stuff, like, because those Tascams don't stay in tune because they drift and stuff, but it just adds all this charm. It's, yeah. Yeah, check him out. You obviously already have a little bit. I would kill to get hold of one of those four tracks now. Yeah, the, the price of them shot up on eBay. Like once he posted some stuff, like they're crazy expensive now. Because yeah. I was going to get one. So we should probably talk about what you do now. So like for the longest time, you've been the singer songwriter with his guitar, and you would produce your own material. And I, and I've seen it go through various shifts away from more guitar-based stuff into slightly more electronic-based production and and always kind of sort of blending genres, you know, a little bit of metal but with some of uh, electronic production. And But obviously, over the last, what, four years, four or five years, you've been working on a, a completely new way of producing music. Oh, I've just disappeared to put my water down. Yeah, for five years now, I've been playing a pretty radically different kind of instrument. Um, so nowadays, I play a thing called the Mimi Gloves, um, which is a gestural instrument for anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about. It's a gestural instrument that was developed by Imogen Heap, and she uh, developed this wearable technology as a way to for the audience to be able to see how she was creating electronic sounds because she said the problem was you go and see her live and you just like watching a woman sing into a laptop and as she famously said for all you know she's checking her emails so she needed the sound the audience to go oh i get where the electronic sound is coming from so she invented these gloves very long story short 
So I have cerebral palsy, which affects my hands and my mobility, amongst other things. And I was, it was getting progressively like worse, especially when it came to playing live. Like when we were on that acoustic circuit, I was really like having some major hand cramp issues. And I was like, I remember like just dropping out of a night because my hand was just like really screwed. And I just thought, oh, this is it. If I'm pulling out of gigs, then this is kind of the end. And I reached out to this, well, I just went on Twitter going, can't be the only person having these problems, but certainly the only disabled person I knew, let alone sort of disabled musician, growing up in a very tiny village, being a sort of token disabled kid at Kingsbury School. I was like, this doesn't make sense. There must be other people trying to overcome these barriers. And I was introduced to a charity called Drake Music. Very long story short, they introduced me to Imogen Heap because they were like, Imogen Heap's doing this thing with these gloves and we think it could be a really cool bit of accessible tech. Because the idea that the instrument could be worn and learn the user, so that flipped the whole problem on its head. It wasn't like about me trying to deal with my hand issues. It was like, well, the instrument will just learn it based on what it, whatever it is on any given day. And that became the start of that. And But then it became really exciting because as you we were just talking about the sounds and stuff in the laptop and having all those electronic things. Well, as you know, like, I had all that stuff going on in the studio, but then when you saw me live, I was just sort of doing my thing on one guitar, like just here's my feelings in A minor kind of thing. <laughs> and now, like, I've got all the sounds, I've got all the boxes, all the toys out, because I can do literally anything I can do on in the studio. I can just do it with the gloves, so... It looks like I might be, I could look like I'm playing an invisible drum kit or playing an invisible guitar or just grabbing sounds out of thin air. And yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty exciting and it's treated me well. The last five years have been pretty wild from like, you know, 10 people and a dog in Bonds to, well, I've played DC, I've played Tokyo, played all over Europe, did a what was supposed to be a week-long tour that turned into an 18-month world tour. Like, yeah, people went... I get it. That that makes sense. And so it all started to happen. And I, it, I, I couldn't be happier for it happening to someone as deserving as you because, like, I've seen how hard you've worked on music and how generous you've been with your time because you never asked me for any money when we were sitting in rooms make, working on my stuff. Well, no, we were just, yeah, making music. I'm just... Uh, yeah, I'm just a slave to like just making good music and just that's always just been the thing that's driven me. So yeah, it was like pretty weird to be thinking that what if this is it? What if like my hand is the start of me not ever making music? So the glove thing kind of happened at the at a convenient moment when I was pretty much on the scrap heap, especially as a live performer. So it's kind of ironic that I ended up kind of completely flipping it. I didn't record any songs like for ages because I was just having far too much fun playing gigs all over the place just going on literally all around the world doing this thing because everyone wanted to see them gloves and everyone completely got the context of like what I was doing I did a big feature for Wired which ended up being like this like three page thing and like hadn't even opened the box that's how much the hype of like oh Imogen Heap's like this guy is going to use them as an accessible instrument and it just like people just went oh that makes so much sense and then it was like you know I'm in Sainsbury's and people are like, you're that guy with the gloves, aren't you? Yeah. Oh, mate, that's amazing. So there's, there's, a, there's a pottered musical history of me and Chris for, for you, dear listener. So I know how varied your musical tastes are. It's clear with your own kind of creative output. So how did you approach making this playlist? Uh, 
agonizingly, as I'm sure everyone says, and everyone will complain about 10 songs. So I was just like, oh, so what is it? And I was trying to be like, I was thinking, is it my influences? Should I do like a story of like how I like, you know, the kind of artists that influenced me? And then I looked at some of my favorite bands and I thought, oh, it feels a bit like um, obvious. I was like, and I was just overthinking it, basically. Like, the, like what's the thing that I'm, you know, trying to say with this? So I, thought, I was like, right, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm not going to have like a thing that says, oh, I'm trying to say this about me because I'm this really serious musician. I was just like, what actually do I listen to the most? What are the songs if I just like trust the algorithm to tell me what I like? Like, what are the songs that I always come back to? Um, and what do they sound like if you put them in a list? So it was like an attempt to not intellectualize it too much. Every one of these songs means a lot to me, but it's not like, because I was overthinking it, I was like, so I've got to rule out some big bands. Like my favorite band of all time is Metallica. So I was like, well, that's too, I felt like too obvious. Like how can I put, what am I going to say about Metallica if I put a Metallica track in? So I was like, right, that's out. Radiohead were a big influence on me as a teenager. So I was like, right, that's out. Because how do I pin that down? Why, where's my head at like now? You know, at the ripe old age of 30 something. Um, what am I listening to? And these tracks are very much my headspace. Um, yeah, definitely like in the last year or so. A lot of these, there's quite a few of these tracks that are quite new to me. Okay. And there's only a few like, there's a few, there, there's some legacy stuff. There's some stuff that goes right back conveniently enough to um that time where we first met like at school that kind of era there's a couple of throwbacks in there and there's some stuff that's really really new to me like i've discovered it in the there's a track on here that's like one of my all-time favorite songs i only heard it for the first time 18 months ago and it's just like yeah so that was it really i was like where's my head actually at if i'm not trying to be too clever and be like oh well here's my journey as an artist i thought that's not really what you're asking me is it it could it, have been. It's, it's whatever you want it to be, Chris. This yeah, is it. I'd overthunk it, hadn't I? Completely overthunked it. All right, so who's your first track by? My first track is by a band called Crosses. And it's spelt with crosses, which always makes me chuckle. The little emojis of crosses. That's how they spell it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it makes Does sense, that... but I'm, I'm struggling to think about how pe how people search for them on platforms. Thankfully, yeah. you can just type in the word crosses because obviously the algorithm has won. <laughs> All right, so I mean, when when I listen to this, I'm like, what? Well, I mean, it it'll probably be obvious to, to some people and to yourself, but like, as soon as the track starts, I was like, where do I know that voice from? Ah, I was like, right, yeah, yeah. That sounds. Sounds like Chino from Deftones, and sure enough, this is his side project. Yeah, one of so many Chino side projects. Yeah, I'm a massive Chino, like, both me and my partner, we're just big, like, Chino geeks. Basically, anything he does, we will be into Deftones. Yeah, Deftones are on that list of, like, oh, if I'm ruling out some favourite bands, because Deftones are one of my all-time faves as well. But I was like, well, where do you drop the needle? So, but I listen to this track... A lot. I listen to Crosses a lot, but this is the one, like, I have this on, like, a little playlist where, I put this at the start of this playlist, because this is, like, there's a weird association with this song for me, of, like, there's this calm after a show, and you get in the car, and it's been a bit mad, you've done the thing, you've posed for the selfies, and then I just want to chill and have some quiet, and, like, that is just always the mood I'm in, that track drops, that first beat from this track, I just go, oh, 
just something so spookily calm about this song for me. Um, so that's what that's usually when I have it on. I'm not usually escaping a gig, and this is my wind down jam. Okay, that's interesting. And compared to what people know him for, the production on this is a lot cleaner and a little bit tidier compared to what you would get from a Deftones record. Yeah, it's all like very, it's not really, there's like a couple of moments of heavy guitar across the album, like literally like, you know, eight bars or something. It's really beat orientated. It's like, it's got this really spooky, cool aesthetic. There's a lot of like breaks and hip hop beats. And there's some really, I don't know how, I, it seems obvious to me. There's like, I think there's like a real um, British, I'm going to say Brit pop kind of influence to the songwriting. I think some of the melodies in there, like he's a big fan of like The Cure and The Smiths and that kind of thing. And like, I think he's, I'm sure I heard somewhere he's even like Oasis for like, a, you know, something that he would reference. And like, there's definitely that like a British flavor to some of the writing and some of the melodies. It's very unlike what Deftones do. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that kind of threw me at first because it, like, you know the voice so clearly. And to hear it in a different context is it's a little jarring at first. But I do like this track. Like, I've listened to it a few times this afternoon. and Such a chill jam, right? Yeah, really good. Okay, so this is? This is the epilogue by Crossing. Okay, so moving on from Crosses, who are we listening to now? We are listening to The Mighty Periphery. Never heard of them. Never heard of them. But but weirdly, following on from Chino's side project, the first chord you hear from the guitar, I thought sounded like a very Deftones kind of guitar sound. The rest of the track is is not that, but but the chord structure... In the, in the sort of opening... It's a pure Steph Carpenter kind of Oogie Major 7 thing going on. Deftones are, like, a big influence on Periphery. That is not uh, coincidental. I think that would be... That's probably a pretty deliberate thing, I would guess. Okay. Um, yeah, Periphery are probably the the big dogs in the sort of modern metal scene. Like, I grew up, like, on... My first big love was metal... Metallica, Iron Maiden, Megadeth, those kinds of bands like when I was like 10, 11. You know, just about like, I remember Sad But True coming out as a single. That was like my first real metal moment. That being played on Radio 1 and me just being like, just staring at the radio going, that? I must have been like 10 when that came out. Um, but like, as a metal fan nowadays, like I know a lot of people not, everyone just enjoys what they enjoy, but like, I know lots of people who like they've got this idea about like a golden era of metal like you know it's like that stuff or maybe um, it's like that sort of second wave in the sort of noughties like I was all on the sort of corn Limp Bizkit Linkin Park wave as well but like modern metal there's so much really exciting metal that's happening like right now and I'm really like yeah that's a whole like a lot of stuff like if I'm like my gym playlist is just like all kind of really 
Like Meshuggah would be like the... You heard of Meshuggah? Heard of, but I don't know much about it. Yeah, Meshuggah would be like the elder statesman of like modern metal. So they're like, you know, they're not like that old, but like you're going back maybe 10 years when this kind of like super detuned, like lots of seven and eight string guitars and this whole other kind of what's become modern metal. But Periphery are like, yeah, like they're the big dogs. They're, they're what everyone sort of looks up to in, in that scene. And this song... I'll go a step further. This is the gold standard by which all modern metal tracks should be judged. I just think it is perfection. Okay. So is that your main reason for picking this or is it? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's just something I listen to like all the time. I, like, it's just, it's, yeah, it's one of the most perfectly kind of crafted things. It's, it's got a few like cute like associations because like my kids really like Periphery, which is fun. Like, you know, I was driving around with Dre the other day and he was just, he put this on. Like, I'd give him free reign to spin the tunes in the car. And he's like, yeah, this is this. You know. So that's quite cool. I like that they get this stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just like, it's like, like a, it's just got quality written through it. Like, a bad, bad analogy. It's like a stick of rock. It's just everything about this record is just, it's just such a beautifully written song. Does it sound like a beautiful song? I think it's absolutely, I'm going to use, a word you might not expect. I think it's pop genius. I think that hook is to die for. I wish I'd written it. I think that's something that people shy away from saying about, like, subculture music. Like yeah, metal. totally. They, I they, hate they, that that's a thing. They, they, they don't want to admit that a track might be catchy or has, yeah. like, a, an almost calculated approach to, to the way the track is written. Yeah, I think that's the bit that I get. This is like a, a deep rabbit hole, and I'll try and be brief. But like that is totally a thing, and it really bugs me about music. Like I embrace that, but that is the space that I like. You know, I do make some kind of weird music, and I make it with a very weird instrument. But I'm not, I'm not setting out to like not be like. You know, I like my choruses, I like my hooks, and I've done some festivals and things where like it's um, with some really out there tech, and I'm there with my little three minute songs and my hooks and stuff. But neither is it a calculated effort. I'm not doing it to try and be, to think, oh, how can I package this in a more acceptable way? And I don't think that's what's happening here with Periphery. I think it's just like a love of like, just a great melodies and just that kind of songwriting. And it's just when you get that clash between that kind of, for want of a better word, catchiness with a kind of subculture kind of dynamic, you know, as kind of modern metal. The, have you heard the word gent? That's the word that everyone tries to avoid nowadays with modern metal. D-J-E-N-T. No, what's the what's, what? That's the thing that they used to call it because it's like, that's what the guitar sounds like, gent. And it's like a, it became like a subgenre of like, this is a new metal sound. Oh, so almost like a, like a cliche sort of signature. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's so interesting. So the idea that that sort of thing could evolve to a point where it could be like, still really intensely heavy and... Just like a fucking brilliant tune. Okay, what so this is? I've talked it up. This is Remain Indoors by Periphery. Okay, so moving on from periphery, we have what I would term as a hard left turn. Okay, cool. 
that's interesting. Who's this by? This is Childish Gambino, Mr. Donald Glover. Uh, would, uh, do we call him a polymath because he's he's so sort of successful in so many different fields? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, like you know, he's done so much. Unlike the acting thing, um, did you ever watch Community? Never watched Community, but I'm, I'm aware of it. Um, I, I'm aware of several sort of sh- clips or memes that have kind of come out of the of that show. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew in our bed in the morning. I knew that he wrote on Thirty Rock and maybe SNL as well. Uh, and you know, obviously, he wrote his own show. Uh, Atlanta, and then he was in Star Wars, and then there's some great stand-up. Yeah, and then somewhere in the middle of that, he comes out as a musician. And I remember hearing, um, oh man, what was the track? There was it when he, what, three thousand and five. I think I'm pretty pretty sure the track was called called three thousand and five, and. Uh, I was just so blown away by the production and the the approach to the lyricism. I was just like, like it's not like a token side project. Oh, and he he also does a bit of music. He doesn't just do a bit of music. He's yeah, amazing yeah. at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not like oh, I'll have a go at this next. Well, that's not how it feels anyway. I heard an interview with his some castmates from Community because that was before the music thing took off, and he was like, you know. Oh, do you want to hear some of my tunes? Like playing them tunes, like in the car, at the end of the day, and they're all just like, "He's going to be huge. He's going to be too big to be in some TV show. Going to explode." And like I, this, he's in the category of like relatively new discoveries for me, like musically, of which there are quite a few in this playlist. That I'm like, you know, it's kind of Headspace now stuff. And yeah, there's a lot of places I could have dropped the needle. Um, he obviously made a really important and powerful track called This Is America, um, which I think many people, but if you don't know that, I just, just, whatever you're doing, I shouldn't say this on your podcast, should I? I should say, just stop what you're doing now, go to YouTube and watch the video for that, it's powerful stuff. Um, But uh, the production on this album, for me, and there's a bit of backstory about him kind of like going through his dad's record collection and discovering like bands like Funkadelic and just these kind of soul and funk things and just wanting to like modernize that and make that into a thing and he partnered with oh the name of the producer has fell out my head he's the guy who does a lot of Star Wars stuff now he does the soundtrack to the Mandalorian and stuff um Swedish guy who also did the music to community and that's how he ended up working with him um there's some really good stuff on YouTube about how they went about this, like real, like, mad professor in the laboratory kind of stuff. And he's a really, really, like, super competent musician. He's not just a guy with, like, you know, I've got some lyrics and I'm going to, like, get the producer to make the beat. Like, he's a great drummer, as in Donald Glover I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. And, there's you know, uh, he's a great instrumentalist, great keyboard player, etc., etc., and just makes this, like... Like, my pet, my mum especially, like... Well, no, my dad as well. Like uh, maybe a slightly different set of influences, but like Earth, Wind, and Fire, and uh, the Real Thing, and these were like big groups when I was a kid in my house, at least. You know that. So I'm familiar with like the era of like the '70s funk and soul influences, 
but this just turns everything up to 11 and it creates this like collage like this track just bounces around in so many di different directions and that's something i just it feels mischievous as a bit of music making and i just yeah i just love it because it's quite mellow for a good two and a bit minutes yeah like exactly. it feels like a slow jam and then, and then all of a sudden it just cranks up and all of a sudden there's a riff and yeah. he goes from this kind of soothing vocals to, to scream in his head up. Yeah, like James Brown esque kind Meets of Black wailing. Sabbath, like, what is it? It's just so many wild influences. Um, yeah, I, I could have, like, Redbone is the big track from this album that people would know, but I just, I was like, this is the thing, this is the opener on the record, and it's the, the one that I just go, like, it's just such a little journey as a song you know like, I don't, it's probably not even that long but it feels like one of those really oh it is a longer song yeah okay 619 um yeah it feels like such a little adventure as a song you know it goes off in so many different directions and yeah he's just i'm just in awe of him he's just such a genius the fact that he can just be like because to me like, i'm only like I'm like the serious like music guy and I find it quite hard to get out of, of that mentality. And the idea of someone who could just so efforts, effortlessly make serious music and really powerful music and be a great comedian and be a great actor and like, you know, because like how he is in community is not how he is in Star Wars. You know, he's so... And like that alone would be enough of a, a, to impress anybody if he was just an actor. But he's not just an actor. He's also... A, absolute musical genius he's a stand-up comedian he's a writer there's going to be other stuff i mean yeah he was writing on snl wasn't he yeah. um, well i mean and there's another show that he was behind the scenes on as well yeah i would it kind of makes sense now you tell me that this is the first track on an album because i think it serves really well as an intro because it, it almost if the first track is varied in that way it's it's kind of like you're in, you're in for some of this and then I'm going to do some of that and you, you, you strap it's in. It's like a cinematic, like, set in a scene. That's And it serves that purpose really well on this album. I mean, oh. this is the the album I probably know the best of his, I think. But I think he's retired now as Childish Gambino. I think there is no more. Well, that's... There'll be another, there'll be another musical thing, but Childish Gambino is... Is he, is he has completed that work. That is done now, I believe. Moving on to the next thing. Whatever the next thing, I just can't wait to find out what the next thing is. Yeah, a proper, like, polymath, renaissance man. And these words get overused, but, like, he really is, like, worthy of the title. Okay, so this is? This is Me and Your Mama by Childish Gambino. Okay, so moving on from Childish Gambino, who are we listening to now? This is Licky Lee that we're listening to and talking about with our mouths. Um, Licky Lee is an artist who I discovered through my partner, fiance, future wife, Nikki. She, This is one of her things that she brings to the musical table. And I was like, oh my God, this is genius. This, like, I've become a huge fan of her music. Um, like, 
it's a big part of like music's a massive part of my life with Nikki and our relationship and like we have like so much music that's like ours together like Deftones and Chino and Licky Lee's one of the newer things that's in there we have our little things of like that we go oh, that's just your thing and you like you listen to that and I just yeah vice versa like she cannot stand like Radiohead or the Beatles or anything like that and um, she's got some like quirks that I just go hmm don't get that at all but like we've got our big pile of stuff that you know very um we can share a record collection quite happily and Nikki Lee is definitely one of those that Nikki brought to the table and this song um this whole album is just really extraordinary it's a really condensed little record okay it's about half an hour long this album and yeah this is just like one of our songs I guess that sounds awfully uh soppy let's go with romantic but yeah this is like one of our jams for sure um there's there's a few on this record but this is the one and it just like yeah such a beautiful song and then there's just like this this bit there's this melody at the end that just happens out of nowhere and it just like the first time i heard it i was just like just couldn't fucking breathe i was like what the fuck is that it was just it just wiped me out um such a beautiful Thing. I may have mentioned that I think it's a beautiful song once or twice. Well, I think the thing that struck me was in the first ten seconds, the guitar sound is massive. It's, but it's 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 just an acoustic. But the way that it's been produced gives this amazing sense of scale and size. And do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like reverb for days, but you feel like you're on like a. It's, um, yeah, she's, um, I hope I get this right, I think she's Swedish and like, yeah, there's definitely like um, like a Scandinavian kind of vibe to it if like there's a lot of music from up there that kind of works for us. Like my partner's a massive Him fan, I'm a massive Sega Ross fan, like there's a bit of a, an expansiveness to those, those kind of, the music, the best music that comes from those sort of countries and it like, yeah, it does, I mean it's a really basic on one hand, it's quite a basic, raw, acoustic track, but then there's just this atmosphere to it that takes it to this whole other place. And, uh, yeah, there's always something so... Like she, I think she's got a really beautiful voice, but, like, there's just this incredibly sad quality to it all the time. And she does some very, very poppy stuff as well that's not really like this at all, that's very kind of trap beats and auto-tune, and even that still manages to feel incredibly sad. Well, I was going to say, the first time I was introduced to her was uh, the opening track on a mixtape put forward by a previous guest, Rosie Crow, And she picked uh, Rich Kid Blues, which is a super catchy song. Almost sounds kind of like that naughty indie rock and roll. Oh, yeah, kinda. I know the one, yeah, yeah. But, um, but this is... Like polar opposite to that, you know what we were saying. What we were saying earlier about like deliberately catchy music, Rich Kid Blues feels like that. Whereas the track that you've picked is a bit more ethereal and a little bit more um, what's the word? A little bit more melancholic and, like I said, with this with the sense of uh, space that you get from the production, completely different song. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's powerful stuff. And then she, she's really inventive artist because every album kind of has its sound. And this album like feels like one very cohesive thing. It's very short. And then her next record, um, 
I was a bit like, oh, but it took me a minute and as to be expected, like Nikki got it straight away and I wasn't, I wasn't sure because it was very pop production. It's like, you know, TR606s and lots of auto-tune and it was very kind of current thing. But I was like, no way, you peel back the layers and there's still this beautiful, incredibly sad um, songwriting going on. She's just changing the scenery. She's just changing the kind of the aesthetic and, and that being part of the story. But that is really quite an admirable thing to do, I think. It's really fascinating. They're so distinct. What I, The trouble is I wanted this album. Again. Two. Yeah. Yeah. So. I, I was saying something similar to, I guess, recently where as much as you, the listener, want them to crank out that same Your album favorite. again, just... the artist needs to do something different or they'll perish. And you wouldn't like it if they did it anyway. Like, it would just be rubbish. Like, you think you want it, like to be you know think you want an artist to stay in a place but if they actually did I'd like to think you, yeah maybe I don't know I guess we'll never know because all the best artists don't hang around do they well this is it okay so this track is this is the title track from the album I Never Learn this is by Nick. All right, so moving on from Licky Lee, who have we got next? Gangstar. Another that le- left-hand turn, if I'll say so myself. Cool, good. Where does this start in my um, journey? So, like, I got into hip-hop really as a producer and, like, making beats and somebody giving me like a pirate copy of Fruity Loops version one when I was like 17 years old and like discovering like samples and breaks and looping up the Amen Brother thing and that was like my sort of introduction and the me and my buddy Lee we got really into making beats and the, the bible at the time was the first Jurassic 5 record and uh, like lesson six being like we want to do that that that's what we're talking about um but so I wasn't super knowledgeable about like hip hop at that point, and I like it was kind of as a beat maker. And then I'm not even sure how I discovered Gangstar, but that was like, yeah, they just just blew my mind. It's quite timely actually because there's a really great TV show, um, Mark Ronson's. Is it called Watch the Sound? It's just come out on Apple TV, and he goes through a different um, kind of music making technique every week, and. The one I watched a couple of days ago was about sampling. And he's in the studio with DJ Premier of Gangstar and just like, he's just saying so much stuff that I was saying. Like, he was like, Mark Ronson's like, when I heard Gangstar, I went, no, this, this is it. This is what hip hop is to me. Like, and just, it was so cute to see like someone like, Mark Ronson's done all right, but he was just totally fanboy and just like worship like, watching like premiere just working on some beats in the studio like this is like now you know a recent thing and uh, it's just like how does this guy do it and it's just that whole thing of like basically just spending your life in record stores to find the the sample that no one else is going to find and then Mm. turning that into a track and doing all that stuff and then with Guru as just like 
well, for my money, the greatest MC of all time over the top of that, just the best producer and the best MC as a double act. It was just an unstoppable force for me. There's, I could have picked 20 tracks, but I just went with, you know what, let's go with this one. I don't know if I'd have him down as one of the best MCs, but definitely one of the both bo- one of the best voices in hip hop. Do you know what mm. I mean? Like, he, I don't he, know if he, he's like technically like. I think for me, it's the quality of his voice and lyrically, um, just it, especially this track. This track just there's so many things, there's so many lines in this just, that have just like stuck with me forever. But yeah, maybe like I don't know. There's probably um, yeah. There might be other, or there will be. Yeah, I mean, from from a, from a lyrics point of view, there's a lot of poignancy, uh, and and because you can you can understand every word that he says, he's very yeah, yeah, careful yeah. to deliver a lot of stuff with meaning. So maybe I'm I'm doing him a, a, a disservice, but if we, um, maybe maybe what I'm saying is he's not someone who you would think of for sort of rapid dexterity in terms of flow and cadence but that's not to say that his own style isn't i think you can hear that as well in like like there's lot i like it i thought it was really interesting that eminem referred to gangstar as an influence and like you can see like the evolution because yeah you're right it's not like the most um yeah it's not the most technically uh Dexterous. I don't know what the vocal equivalent of dexterous is, but we know what we mean when we say dexterity. Yeah, yeah like there's, yeah. Um, stylistically, it's some music like doesn't evolve technically. There's, I think that's referring back to periphery. I think that's the thing I love. It's, I think metal's one of those genres that actually meaningfully evolves and people actually try and change. And like hip hop is that too in terms of like just today i was in the gym listening to dj premiere playlist of like stuff he's produced with other artists and you know there's other stuff where way more like there's some of the stuff he did with naz and there's like um stuff he did with mo's deaf and there's definitely like an evolution in terms of what is like stylistically um what people could achieve as an mc but i'm you know for one thing i cannot and this is probably a good thing i cannot rap or toffee so i don't have the like i have the respect for it to a degree but there's also a sense of like i don't even know what's the new there's a newish eminem track that's like in the guinness book of records it came out really recently and it is just technically you just go how what is like it's i can't remember what it's called it's got a really weird title i don't know look at it it's like it's it's just come out it's like a thing and the the, the technique is just like what how is that even possible? Like, just, uh, you know, he set a record for the most amount of words in a bar and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, and you would understand that from him. Yeah. And But I think with Guru, the, the delivery is more concise and more about getting a message across. And I think that is what is to be valued and to be respected with, with his approach to things. I mean, I I came to Gangstar relatively late when the uh, when the best of double disc album came out. I remember Full seeing clip. the video for Full Clip on MTV Two, and it stopped me in my tracks. I was like, yeah. "What is this? Where do I get more?" Um, but but also weirdly, I've never been able to listen to that album start to finish because 
maybe there's not enough contrast in the music. Like every track is different, but there's a there's a, a similarity in terms of the production that goes throughout. Understandably so. That means I stop paying as much attention to it because it's more of the same, and I I, I feel yeah, like yeah. right I need to listen to something different now. Each one of those tracks stands up on its own and is amazing. But I, I think c- it feels bitty as well. I think with the with full clip, like for me this this is the title track to an album, and like having a, an album that you know is presented as an album, there's a, there's a bit more. This is a record I can listen to, but yeah, I know what you're saying with like the that double disc thing because it jumps around a little bit inevitably. And there was another, I can't remember what it's called now. There was the the last album, obviously Guru passed away some time ago now. When did that? Oh, it's 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 a it's a while ago, and then the, there's there's an album that came out recently that was kind of posthumous, um, sort of recordings that have sat on the shelf for a while for various reasons i think maybe there was some animosity between the people who had the rights to guru's estate as it were and and dj premier um, yeah 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 that's uh, i don't know much about the music that's come out but i did read about that yeah but obviously that's all been quashed so that they can actually put the material out which is all we really want you know mm. and especially with sort of um with MF Doom passing, you hope that there's a, a, a litany of unreleased recordings that hopefully see the light of the day. Um, for the, for this, in the same way that everyone was ecstatic when they heard that new gangstar music was coming out. Yeah, yeah, you would hope that, like, um, and that, yeah, that, like, I remember, well, like, I'm a big Jimi Hendrix nut, and there's, like, so much stuff that was, like, like a whole career there's so many albums that came out like after like there's still like new stuff new stuff massive air quotes being found um and how much stuff is prince gonna have oh yeah well you know there's a vault right yeah there's gonna be so much stuff if you if you ever i don't know if you've seen it but kevin smith talks about making a documentary for him he got commissioned to make a documentary about the production of this album that was a little bit more gospel based and he basically lived in the commune with all these people while they were producing it for like a couple of weeks. And then he, he, he you know, finishes the documentary and he hands it over to the production company and they're like, God, cool, so when's it coming out? I was like, oh, no, it's, it's not coming out. That's just going in the, in the vault with all the other albums wow. he's recorded. Um, like, there's so much stuff in there. Um, we, we don't know when... If if it ever comes out at all, it's it's just yeah. gonna sit there kind of thing. So there's a treasure trove of material. Yeah, that's like that's intense to think that there's that much stuff and then somebody's gone. That wouldn't be the, the case for me. I'm always like really like, oh god, if I die, it's just a half finished crap on a hard drive. <laughs> well, you talk it as someone who hasn't written a song in three years up until very recently. Well, yeah, I've got to hang in at least long enough to finish the pile of oh. But I, I, I don't know if we're going to get too much more material from Gangstar because obviously Guru and DJ Premier weren't talking for a while leading up to when Guru passed away. So mm. I, I don't know how much more we'll get. Did you ever listen to um, Rasmataz, Guru's Rasmataz? Yeah, I love that album. Thing. 
Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I've got a bit of a thing. Uh, jazz is a, a uh, that's about as close as I could get to understanding jazz. I used to work in like the specialist music department in uh, the massive Virgin Megastore in Birmingham. Um, so I was over like classical and jazz. And that is like my my weak link as a music uh, fan. Like I've not found my thing. Like, but when the jazzy sprinkles happen in Gangstar tracks and DJ Premier Productions, I'm here for that. And I love the whole history and the whole thing of like, you know, those musicians that they pull out those samples from, those records were already long forgotten. Like, how do they? It's just such a genius thing in my mind to just find stuff that's going to make a great beat, you know. Okay, so this track is? This is Moment of Truth by Gangstar. Things get severe for everybody everywhere. Why do bad things happen to good people? Seems that life is just a constant war between good and evil. The situation that I'm facing is mad amazing. To think such problems can arise from minor confrontations. Now I'm contemplating in my bedroom pacing. Dark clouds over my head. My heart's racing. Suicide? Nah, I'm not a foolish guy. Don't even feel like drinking. All right, so moving on from Gangstar, who are we listening to now? Um... Yes, we are listening to the mighty Jimi Hendrix, or more accurately, the Jimi Hendrix experience. Now, I don't know that much about Hendrix. I, I had, I remember I, I swapped something with another skater when I was maybe 16 and got hold of a, a, a cassette of an album. I can't even remember what the name of the album was, but it had... <clears throat> it had Crosstown Traffic in it. And that was all the, the track that I was most excited about. Yeah. It's a great track. I was like a full-on, like, as a teenager, 13, 14, I was like a super nerd. Like, I had just bought every book. Every I was scrabbling around for every recording if there was anything that came out. I think there's probably a time I could have you could have picked a date and I could have told you what he was wearing that day from photos and stuff. Like, I was just a Hendrix super nerd. I was just obsessed from the m- moment. Um, I guess it's my dad's influence as a guitar player being like, oh, you want, you know, I was just, all I cared about was like wanting to sound like Kirk Hammett and he's like, no, you want to listen to this guy and just, you know, the Hendrix thing. I went, ah, oh, I get it. And like, um, like my guitar teacher had seen him live, right? What? And that blew my mind that I knew somebody who'd been in the same room as Jimi Hendrix. That was like, I'm not a religious person, but that is like, it might that might as well be God. That you might as well say you've met God. That is just like to me. That was just like, how is that possible? It's Jimi Hendrix. He seemed too like a true superhuman as a musician. I get a similar feeling with venues. So, like, if I... I mean, not that I play live anymore, but, like, when... Like, if you ever played the assembly rooms in in Tamworth, you'd be like, wow, the Stones have played on this stage. The Beatles have played on this stage. You know, it's... It's it's a bizarre thing to think that you're occupying... uh, A bit of space that, like... yeah, Yeah, just really bizarre. I'm going to sound like I'm balling now, but I played a set at Abbey Road and that was just like... That's crazy. It was just... Yeah. It was, you know, perks of the gig and all that. But yeah, you have those moments. Yeah, venues, definitely, yeah. 
doing that whole thing, going up the steps, you know, just taking the selfie. Here we are, you know, being one of those crossing wankers, holding up the traffic. <laughs> yeah, doing the whole Abbey Road experience, but you're like, this is it, this is it. You've seen it a million times in documentaries and photos. And you're in there. It's so, a beautiful experience. So what is it about this track in particular? Because obviously there's there's a lot of material to, to pick from with Jimmy. Yeah, there is so much. I think, yeah, and I could have dropped the needle pretty much anywhere. This is my, probably my, yeah, it's my favourite studio album of the Jimi Hendrix experience. And like we were just talking about with Prince. And there's lots and lots of stuff. He made so much music in the last year of his life that didn't come out until, you know, many, many years later. So there is, there's just so much to choose from. But, um... I suppose like there's a, this has an added bit of nostalgia because this is um, something I sweated over in my guitar lessons with Neil Davis, um, the aforementioned guitar teacher. He was in Tenuous Link. He was in The Selector, who, you know, mm-hmm. it's just the same old show on my radio. Those guys, Scar mm-hmm. band from late 70s, early 80s. Um, un- unusually for us, famous for being a Scar guy, but he's an amazing blues guitarist and... Uh, he taught me how to play this song and it was like it's, it's just a really important musical memory of learning this how to play this and like you know really pouring over it i mean yeah i could have dropped the needle anywhere but this is still a song that i would sit and just like you know in fact i was doing it yesterday sat in my garden just doodling on my guitar and just doing a bad cover version of this song as i often do this is little wing by the Jimi hendrix experience Leave these bits in. I could do a better job than I'll just do it with (laughs) my All right. Moving on from Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, this is another trip back to mine and Nikki's record collection. Another band that she got me into, um, Blue October. Now, I recognised the name of the group, but I really knew nothing about them. But I thought this, this track was delightfully catchy it is that and it's really um this is like the the gold standard for me this is the thing when it feels like someone's really saying something and it is undeniably catchy like because it's not a pretty subject matter it seems like it's heavy stuff but it's like wrapped up in a shiny box well yeah i mean I'm probably guilty of not paying as much attention to the lyrical content on the first few listens. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I think I, it takes I, a bit of. Yeah, I listen to the melody and I kind of take in the sort of tone of it. So, like, I, I, I haven't picked up on any kind of negative sort of subject matter. And also, that's me being kind of I've become a real super fan of Blue October and Justin Furstenfeld as a songwriter, and you know that is 
par for the course. He's going to tackle some difficult stuff. I think he's a really interesting and heavy dude. Um, if, like, I've met him a few times. He's really seems like a really good guy, a really intense guy. But he sort of picks up. Like I was the biggest REM fan at one point, and like REM obviously split up at the right time. And I feel like Low October are kind of like picking up a kind of. The first time I saw them live, I was like. He's cut from the Michael Stipe cloth. Like, it felt like, you know, someone who could say some heavy stuff, tackle some complex lyrics, and sing to a lot of people and make, you know, a whole, a very big room full of people feel like they're completely connected to that person. I mean, I've seen R.E.M. a few times and you feel like singing just to you, even when there's 20,000 of you. Not many front men have that quality that they really feel like they can connect that many people and Justin Furstenfeld is I felt like he's like, he definitely one of those people and this is quite a new track this is there's quite a, there's a bunch of stuff and there's other songs that are probably bigger more popular songs that I could have picked but this is one that I come back to a lot just because as you kind of correctly sussed out it just like it's like a little Trojan horse of like a shiny box with some some lyrics that really resonated with me but it's it's beautifully produced it's again dare i say it's a, it's kind of a pop track but it's it's got some it's got some teeth okay so this is this is i want to come back home by blue october So moving on from Blue October, who's up next? This is a track by Dana Jean Phoenix. Now, I feel like this is this is the kind of thing that you would you were listening to when you started moving towards more electronica style production. That's interesting. This is quite. This is one of the tracks that's quite new to me, actually. Um, so the story with this is I could have there's a lot of tracks this is representative of like a scene more than anything um, there's this whole thing called synthwave which is like this whole retro 80s kind of like fictionalised nostalgia thing that's like makes you like for people of a certain age it reminds you of like your childhood and there's loads of artists I could have pointed to um, FM84 Ollie Ride, um, there's loads of great synthwave bands in that. I mean, just there's tons of beautiful stuff if that 80s feel is your thing. Um, but this was the first track that when I discovered synthwave that was just like, oh, that was genius. It's like a false memory. I hear it and it sounds like a song that I knew as a kid, but I only heard it for the first time in 2019. Well, see, this is what I'm, I mean. Like, it sounds like an older track, it, which is why I thought, like, is this something that, that kind of nudged him in the direction of, like, more electronic production? Like, I mean, it, it reminds me of Boys of Summer by Don Henley. Yeah, totally in that ballpark of, like, 80s feels. It's, yeah. Because there's a very similar sort of synth riff because it's not it's not low enough to be a bass line, but like a like a little melody in the down, background. Of, down, 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 exactly, down, down, which is bit. virtually the same as this. 
it's almost like a synthwave trope. There's like a thing in synthwave of like a lot of bands are sort of making soundtracks almost in a way. Like movie soundtracks are a big influence on the genre on the scene itself. You know, like move where like a movie, like a John Hughes movie, or I don't know something. Uh, yeah, something like the Breakfast Club or something. Like bands are influenced by movies from the eighties as a way of like sort of trying to capture a feel you know and that whole thing for me weirdly enough synthwave like it's become my partner and i again we're like massive synthwave heads we'll go to synthwave nights and stuff but this is one i brought to the table and i was so this is really it's quite random but i went to i was working in kawasaki city in 2019 and my first night in japan i was just wandering around this city and it was like if Blade Runner was cute, I was like, there's this retro 80s feel and I feel like I'm in the future at the same time. And I was actually on the plane going like, what is, there must be like a music that's gonna like fit, like that. I can't be the first person to think that and I'm certainly not clever enough to invent it. Someone's already invented a music that's trying to be like futuristic mm. and 80s and I was just like, going, I was listening to, uh, there's some of the bands that uh, were in that sort of ballpark future islands i think have that kind of vibe as more of a modern band who've got a bit of an 80s flavor and i just fell down the rabbit hole and found this whole scene of like synthwave and this was like the first track i ever heard that was like on a synthwave playlist and it just like absolutely just wiped me out and i just played it to nikki and she was just like hit with this wave of like false nostalgia of going this feels like a song from my childhood but of course it isn't because it's it's like a now song. A now song. That sounded grammatically um, good. <laughs> wow. So this track is? This is Le Mirage by Dana Jean Phoenix. Moving on from Le Mirage, who's up next? Moving on, but um, sticking with Adventures in Japan for a moment, we are listening to, or about to listen to, the mighty Ryoichi Sakamoto. Now, I've never heard that name. I wouldn't attempt to say it, but I recognise this music. Where do I know this music from? Um, so, you might, an outside bet, I'd say you know it from the movie, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, starring David Bowie. But probably not. Probably DJ Quicksilver, Heart of Asia, when you about 20, and that was a big clubland track, which takes the melody of this music and turned it into a thing. Oh, I was hoping like, you know what? I, I definitely recognise the melody and I, I, I think I've heard it. You know what? I've not seen the movie, but I think I've seen the scene referenced. And I think, yeah, yeah. you know, like those talking head shows where they're talking about like iconic movies of, of like the last sort of 50 years or what have you. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen people talk about this film. And of course, the music gets played along with the clips and stuff. So yeah, I, th exactly. I think that's why. That should be, yeah, that would be a more um, credible reference than the butchering that it got in 
sort of 2001. Yeah, well, let's, um, let's face it. When I, when I was 20, I wasn't out there listening to club bangers. No, no, me neither. They might have floated in via the radio, but that's it. Like, we weren't yeah. those guys, were we? Um, this is a re... There's two, there's two kind of distinct versions of this piece of music. The one from the movie starring David Bowie does sound quite different and is very, actually more like what we just heard, a kind of 80s synth kind of thing. This is like um, a piano uh, reduction, as they would say, a piano reduction or, and string quartet um, from about 90, it's from 1996. And I heard it when it was quite new. Uh, it, yeah, it might as well be my favourite piece of music. It's really, it just, like, it's been with me, this recording, since it, it came out, and it just had such a profound effect on me. Um, it really influenced my thinking and got me into Ryoichi Sakamoto. And then um, the sort of tenuous link is that, obviously, spending time in Japan, it has a life of its own because it's such an iconic piece of music that, like, you know, this is this sounds weird now but like toilets are really nice places where there's nice music playing and they smell nice and stuff and like it's a little tune that's like playing or you'll be in the hotel lobby and it's it's just like it's everywhere very subtly in the background like it's a really iconic and important cultural bit of music Um, almost like it sets the tone in in several places just like okay you're in japan you will hear here's this the, in the here's background. the soundtrack to being in Japan. If it's not playing in the in the back of your mind, we're going to play it in the back of the. <laughs> Literally, because there's music everywhere in Japan. Like you just like step out your hotel room and you're just wandering down the corridor and there's like there's music everywhere. Um, yeah, like literally, you go to the toilet. Toilets play music in Japan. Like it's. Yeah, my different. my toilet doesn't play music. Is it heated? No. Play music? No. Does it wash your butt? No, it does not. Then it's not a Japanese toilet. <laughs> I don't know how you thought for a second it was. So this is... Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence by Raiwichi Sakamoto. So moving on from Ryuichi Sakamoto, we find ourselves at your final track. But before we get stuck into that, for the benefit of anyone who's listening, who's learning about you for the first time, where's the best place to find out about you and all the wonderful music you make? 
Uh, nowadays, that would be Instagram, because I'm not so active anywhere else, and you can find me, uh, I'm generally known as Diskinetic. You can find me at Diskinetic on Instagram, where I post lots of music and stuff, and anywhere else I've pretty much given up on the internet other than Instagram. So find me there. <laughs> All right, we'll make sure we link to that in the show notes so everyone can check out your material. Um. So who are we listening to now? We're listening to Bjork. Now, it's interesting because you you mentioned that there's a lot of sort of marquee names that you've purposely put to one side. To... Yeah, here we are. But, but you know, it's but it, it's this is almost like your headline act in in like a in a lineup of artists that you've you've gushed over. Yeah. So so why why does Bjork make the cut? Yeah, because I just couldn't not... Yeah, Bjork would be the exception, I suppose. Like, lots of great bands didn't make the cut, but Bjork is just... Yeah, contender for the greatest living musical artist. I mean, she might as well be. Um, again, and someone else who I've been, like, a super nerd about for a very, very long time. Um, finally saw her live not that long ago, the last tour pre-covid um yeah another kind of close to religious experience i mean she just yeah she's just godlike genius and has made so much music and moved music forward in so many ways right i mean i'm old enough to remember her kind of a right it's weird to me that she was like a 90s and a bit of a like mainstream pop thing and she was like isn't it weird that like paparazzi and stuff happened around her like somebody this important and iconic and serious and like you know how she came out in the 90s was quite strange um well yeah because she's she was never mainstream but she's one of those artists that was revered so much that she kind of got pushed into the limelight yeah, yeah just exactly. by yeah, yeah. the the enormity of her following i mean like I, the first time i ever heard her voice was in the sugar cubes Right, and and that was, but that wasn't because I had a, a record. That was because they played a video on the ITV chart show, and so I just got this glimpse, you know, snapshot of, oh, that's interesting. What's that? Never got to find out anything more about them because I wasn't buying music at that point. But and then she's an artist that I've never really fully got on board with or understood because I think when she was kind of coming to the the forefront of music and pop culture she she was maybe a bit beyond me I, I i wasn't ready to even try to understand where she was coming from musically is this in like times of like big hits of like you know it's so so quiet and that we, no that before before that like oh, okay. if 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 you're talking about the the i, I you, you could probably tell me the name of the track, but that kind of, the iconic black and white music video where she's on the flatbed of the lorry going through New York. Oh, big time sensuality. Yeah, so like, you know, like, I remember seeing that and going, wow, that's really interesting, but I don't quite get it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, like, and I'm not, uh, this is a generally a controversial musical opinion. I can't think of many bands who could almost do a podcast about this. Um... I'm never that excited about where people start out. I'm not a debut album guy. Like, that first record is like, okay, this is going to be something. There's very few artists where I really care about where they start. It's where they end up. And 
she made um, like the, the second album is where it really uh, exploded for me. Apart from the really, I was never into like the 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 moments when she was like pop star ish, you know, with songs like "It's So So Quiet" and stuff. But um, second album, like "Hyper Ballad" and uh, possibly "Maybe" and all that stuff, because this was all sort of happening at a time when like there was lots of guitar bands and TFI Friday was a thing and Cooler Shaker were massive and I was like okay that's cool but then there was this otherworldly person doing stuff that just like literally I was just like I just couldn't even process what is that there's so many influences and things going on but over the years the album's got more cohesive as I think she found her identity with stuff the track that we're talking about uh, will be talking about is from her fourth record which is the where my obsession really was just I, I, I probably only listened to this album in 2001 like seriously well I mean the, the, the first track that really grabbed me was All Is Full Of Love and yeah, I think yeah. that was probably in part due to the music video yeah but that video is just but, but I'm I'm a um, I'm a big I'm definitely very susceptible to the visual enhancing the music. So, and I, I talk about this at nauseum when I, because I, there are certain songs that I connect really deeply to skateboarding. There are tracks that I wasn't that impressed with on first listen, and but the second it's applied to skate video, I, suddenly I, I, I'm more invested. And because I watched that video a bunch of times, I then associate the song. Yeah. Uh, I have a similar thing with OK Go. Like, I love OK yeah. Go. Like, if I'm ever feeling slightly sort of low, I will quite often watch some of their videos because I'm just so inspired by the creativity of the visual and the appreciation for the, 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 the visual creative enhances my enjoyment and my attachment to the, the music. And I think a similar thing happened with All Is Full Of Love. The song is undoubtedly beautiful all on its own, but it was the it was the combination of the two that really grabbed me at that point. Yeah, absolutely. There's a completeness to it as a piece of work. I think OK Go, really, just to go off on that tangent for a second, I think they're a really interesting example of that because, like, I started watching those videos a lot with my kids, like, just getting Dre into that, and he loves the music, and the, but it's a... It's a package, it's a thing. I read an interview um, with, I can't remember his name, the singer, and, and it was like this, the, the question they always get asked is like, doesn't it bum you out that people like think of you as a band who makes great videos and your videos are more popular than your music? And he's like saying like, well, we all just make ones and zeros. Like, I feel sorry for anyone who thinks you have to just put it all in the same box. You know, if you went to a restaurant, like if someone said, oh, they do really great desserts at this restaurant, you wouldn't think like, not go there or you think that the other food is bad or something like and the idea that it's like oh if this is good then that that must be bad like it's, he, he thought that was really strange but like they're really complete pieces of work and like i use uh i just say to siri in the car I'll just be like you know play me some music i like and the algorithm does dish up okay go reasonably often and it is a different experience just hearing them because i'm like i've never quite got past the 
I think that's my thing with them. Like, I need the video. I need to, I need the completeness mm. of this. Um, but that's not a bad thing, and that doesn't mean the music is bad. And I think like, um, yeah, York is obviously uh, it's done amazingly well in that space certainly and she's gone really far with that stuff especially in recent years with the 3d experience she had a whole exhibition in london uh, which i sadly haven't wasn't able to go to where you would go and experience the music through a vr experience and like that's how you're supposed to i'm not going to say hear it because that doesn't make sense experience is probably the word yeah that's how you experience it as a vr thing and that's music is part of that that's really fascinating to me and yeah i love it and i'm also maybe envious is the wrong word but i'm like i'm such a basic music guy like i don't have that talent to make those things kind of happen i have tons of ideas of how i would like to represent things visually and i'll maybe make some headway into looking into the the method and then realizing how much effort it will take and go Oh, I've, I already do too many things. Yeah, I don't even get to the idea stage, really. Um, which in this day and age, you kind of need to, but that's a whole other story. But yeah, I think Bjork does a wonderful um, job of that even more so now. There wasn't like, there was um, there was a DVD actually that came out with this album that had like music, loads of music videos. It was, that was might be the first, probably not the first time, but one a, a really significant time where someone had made music videos for songs that weren't singles that was Mm -hmm. like the thing like there's a whole dvd of the album to see loads of um, visuals that you know they weren't on i'm gonna sound old top of the pops or anything they were um, (laughs) they were just there uh, you know if you were a super fan i know rem played that card a little bit as well um with stuff yeah with bjork i mean i could drop the needle anywhere but this the fourth album was like such an obsession for me like when the beats this this idea of micro beats this thing of like found sounds being like the way that the beats were made and then the idea of just this orchestral stuff and i'd never heard like choral music in like a in a tidy song before you know i was aware of choral music in with my classical head on but this was like had that scale of like uh, orchestral music and um, like choral music. There's just this expanse of just this hugeness of sound. And it was like, but it was just so succinct. These incredibly beautiful, incredibly romantic songs, actually. I think it's a really, um, it's a really touching album. Um, you know, it's a really, yeah, it just, I can't say enough about it. It had a big effect on me. Okay, so this track is? This is the last track. Uh, this is the closing track from Bjork's album Vespertine, and this is a track called Unison. Thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Us, like, I mean, we we don't see enough of each other when there isn't a pandemic on, just because of, of general life bullshit. But you're one of those people <laughs> that I'll stay in touch with digitally. We've been talking a lot about basketball of late, which I've really enjoyed. And weirdly, out of nowhere... I wrote music for the first time in maybe three or four years 
and recorded this little thing, like a little sort of, I don't know, sketch of an idea. And you were one of the first people I sent it to. I told you the thing. I, did, I told you the thing already. I'm sure I did. Because like I was having this, I was making plans with Craig to have all this built. Mm-hmm. And I got up that morning. I was like, oh, I can't wait to tell Mike about this. We could get in there and make a tune. And I went, wait a minute. We haven't made a tune in fucking 10 years. Why would he want to do that? And then that the day you sent me that track. And like, it was just so weird. I was like, why did I think about us, like you and I and music? Because you haven't, I haven't heard any of your music. There hasn't been any music for a very, very long time. And then there you were. There I was in, in, in your song. inbox with a... I had an idea of a thing. Sliding into those DMs, yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Played it to Nikki. She also enjoyed it a lot. Well, I think I do want to record a, a version of it. And as much as I want to get to grips with the, the music hardware that I've bought, I do, I do think it would be a lot of fun to sit in a room with you and actually put something together. So maybe we should do it. I think we should do it. And I think it would be really... I would just be like, not a word. And then, oh, just casually, oh, there you go. We're back. You haven't heard us make a thing for a while. Um, the last thing that anyone would have heard that was anything to do with either of us, it was... We worked on three of my tracks years ago. Promises got a bit of traction on SoundCloud. I don't even fucking go on SoundCloud. Uh, oh, that's where I'll find it. That's where I'll find it. It's all it. on I... SoundCloud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's what people go. were sharing because it was actually, you know, people were. I just think there's like, just for our like, it's not like, um, you know, neither of us are, we're not talking like international fan bases or anything, but I just feel like if it was just so like, the people, you know, the people that will know, and you know, there are, there's a good bunch of people who would really fucking give a shit. They'd be like, what? There's a new thing maybe. guys maybe we'll see it could be quite exciting just to go oh we did that oh man thanks for coming on man i've really enjoyed this thanks mate yeah me too it's good i'm glad we d- did it because it's a nice playlist i'll have another one though please when you get time <laughs> yeah you're, so you're, just... you're more than welcome to come and do a, a, a side b Side B, yeah, cool, because it's pretty agonising. There is a, there is literally a side B. There is just all the stuff I whittled it out of. So that concludes this week's episode and I hope it piqued your interest enough for you to check out Chris and his music. I've linked to his Instagram in the show notes but I've also put a YouTube video showcasing how he creates music with these Mimu gloves and it it really is quite beautiful so I hope you take a second to check that out. As always we've kept the music discussed played below the conversation because I believe that all musicians should be paid for what they do so if you want to listen to Chris's mixtape in full you can find it on Apple Music or Spotify by clicking the link in the show notes. Apologies for this one being a little bit later than normal. Uh, I was away for the weekend and we actually recorded this last night so didn't leave me a whole heap of time to get it edited but it, it all got done first thing this morning and tied up this afternoon so here you go. Hope you enjoy it but I will see you next week for another episode of Mixtapes with Mike.